0: Welcome to this episode of Disease Du Jour on the topic of equine herpes virus with Isila Zobohasi, DDM, MS, PhD, and Associate Professor in Pathobiology and Diagnostic Investigation at Michigan State University College of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Zobohasi's research focus is on herpes viral diseases. I'm host, Kim Brown, Publisher of Equal Management. The Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you in 2021 by Merck Animal Health. With the outbreak of neurologic herpes in Europe and multiple neurologic abortogenic and respiratory cases reported in North America, we wanted to bring our listeners an update on equine herpes virus. So, Dr. Zobohasi, why do you think this is happening? Are we getting better at recognizing and testing for equine herpes virus, or do you think we're actually
1: seeing a global upswing in disease? So I think that's a good question. I think um, the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. I think we are getting better at recognizing it. We are getting better at diagnosing it. Um, Herpes viruses have been around for a very long time and that is true for the equine herpes viruses as well. Now, I think there is the perception that the incidence of neurological disease or EHM has increased in the past decade, but I'm not aware that anybody has done any particular studies in this investigating this question um, in specific. Um, I do know that you know, when there are neurological outbreaks, um, there are multiple labs that tend to sequence these viruses. and. Um, I think with that perception comes the idea that um, there's been some changes in the um, circulating strains and that that may contribute to the increased incidence of neurological disease. But again, it, um, EHM is a multifactorial disease um, that depends on viral factors as well as host factors and environmental factors. So it's really difficult to truly answer that question.
0: And we know that most of the cases when they they are tested are equine herpes virus type one, but there are a few reports of EHV4 infections. So how do veterinarians
1: explain the difference to horse owners when they're doing this testing? So I think that is actually a really important distinction. So EHV1 and EHV4 are both um, members of the same family, the alpha herpes virinae. And um, they both cause respiratory disease that really is clinically indistinguishable um, when you see it in the horse. Now, um, clearly, if you um, submit a diagnostic sample, that would give you a diagnosis of whether you're dealing with EHB1 or EHB4. The big distinction between the two is that EHV4 does not really cause a substantial viremia. There is a little bit maybe of EHV4 viremia, but there isn't really a substantial viremia. And because when we are talking about the pathogenesis of neurological disease or abortions, um, the viremia is really central in getting the virus from the respiratory tract to those sites we don't really see um, neurological disease with EHV-4, and we don't see abortions um, to the same degree as we would with EHV-1 either. So really, if you have an outbreak or you know lots of horses with respiratory disease and it's diagnosed as EHV-4, you would worry much less about neurological disease. And this is also reflected um, where in most of our states, um, if you have an EHM outbreak or neurological disease, that is actually a reportable disease. EHV-4 is not a reportable disease. And so I think the distinction between EHV-1 and EHV-4 is really critical. I think the distinction of whether um, an EHV-1 strain as a neuropathogenic or abortogenic strain is, Certainly, interesting from an epidemiological point of view, and just you know, um, doing research on the disease, figuring out what's going on there. Do we have strain changes? But as far as how you deal with um, an outbreak, or what you do in the barn, or what you tell your owners, it would be exactly the same whether you have a neuropathogenic strain or non neuropathogenic strain. But what you tell your owner, um, if you have EHV1 versus EHV4, is different because you could basically tell them if the horses have EHV-4, the worry about EHM is really um, negligible.
0: Well, and that's a, that's a good distinction that veterinarians should bring up to their owners. That's a good point. Um, so when you were just talking about how veterinarians should concern themselves. So if they have EHV-1 or EHV-4, what is their level of concern? What what should they do depending on what is diagnosed?
1: Well, again, um, if it's EHB one and there are neurological cases, it's a reportable disease, so um, that would get the state vet involved, and I think there would be mandatory quarantine and all of those things. With EHB four, that is not the case. However, I mean, if you have EHB four in the barn you probably also don't want to spread that to everybody and everywhere. So in terms of, you know, some biosecurity measures and and all of those things, I would still recommend that you stick to those because while you wouldn't worry about neurological disease and horses necessarily dying, you also don't want a whole barn full of horses with respiratory disease, especially if you have a lot of youngsters um, there. And why is that, why do you say that,
0: especially if you have a lot of youngsters?
1: Um, So both EHV-1 and EHV-4 respiratory disease is really common in young horses, but as horses age, they've been infected with the virus. Both these viruses establish latency in their host, and there is probably regular reactivation. So they will have some level of immunity that will protect them from the respiratory disease as they get older. So this is why when we are looking at older populations, we rarely see respiratory disease. But we do see neurological disease to a much higher degree. So there is an age factor in what disease manifestations we see with EHV-1.
0: That's very interesting. So why do some horses that get EHV1 develop neurologic signs and some don't. And I'm sure that you could retire tomorrow if you can answer this question.
1: Yeah, sure, that is the million dollar question. And what we do know is is that it is a multifactorial disease. So, you know, there are host factors that um, determine whether a horse does get EHM or not. There are viral factors. So we all know about the point mutation and the polymerase gene that makes a viral strain more likely to cause neurological disease or less likely to cause neurological disease. Although as I've mentioned before, both um, strains can cause neurological disease. So in terms of what you do with your horses, it'll be the same. Um, But then of course, you know, the host and environmental factors really are very important too, because even if you have a whole herd of horses infected, let's say, with a highly neuropathogenic strain of EHV-1, some of these horses will get EHM and some won't get EHM. Now, some of the factors that predispose or make it more likely that a horse gets EHM, we know. So, we know that if you have mares over 20 years of age, they are much, much more likely to come down with EHM. Um, We also know that middle-aged horses or certain breeds are more likely to get EHM than others. And there's a few other factors, but, um, you know, what exact immunological mechanisms and um, all of those fun things or, you know, other genetic um, components that are very host-specific will predispose horses to EHM or not, that is uh, an area of research that I'm actually very interested in and that we are studying But clearly, we don't have, you know, all the answers to that. And if we had the answers, then we could do a lot more to prevent EHM. So that's the goal, clearly.
0: And and you mentioned this. I had not heard before that there are middle-aged horses of
1: certain breeds that are more prone to this. Could you elucidate on that just a little? So, yeah. I mean, so what we also know is that ponies... Um, don't really get EHM while, you know, if you're talking about warm bloods, for example, um, they are more likely to get EHM. And this is just one example. I think there are some studies out there that look specifically into breeds. So there clearly are some genetic factors that either predispose or are protective um, from the disease. But again, the specifics, yeah, we don't really know. Um, but generally speaking, if you, you know, were to have, you know, a herd of one-year-old horses um, that become infected with EHV-1, they would be less likely to get EHM than if you had, let's say, um, a group of horses that are between 10 and 20 years of age.
0: Well, that's a, a, a good point to make for our veterinarians, so as they're walking into their clients, they can they can help them understand the risks better. Um, so, how can veterinarians help protect their patients from disease caused by herpes virus? And we're talking not just neurologic, but the respiratory, the abortogenic.
1: So, I would say, um, again, you know, there are vaccines out there, and I know um that that's always a big question of interest. And these vaccines, um they do have some efficacy for preventing the respiratory disease. I mean, again, as horses age, they are also less likely to get respiratory disease. So, Vaccines are typically fairly successful at um, inducing immunity that can protect from respiratory disease. Mm -hmm. There are also some vaccines that um, are marketed for um, at least reducing abortion, but none of the vaccines can prevent EHM. So, you know, if you have a big group of forces that let's say are less than five years of age, um, where you are a little bit more worried about the respiratory disease, or if you are running a big breeding operation, or there are horses that travel a lot to shows, um, you know, or there's a lot of traffic in, in, trafficking in and out of the premises, that's where the AAEP guidelines would recommend vaccination, and I you know, always sort of stick with that. And I think, you know, again, just in terms of trying to reduce the the total virus that's replicating in the herd and, you know, was that reducing the amount of virus that's there to infect horses, there is certainly a value in vaccination. But I do think because vaccination really doesn't prevent EHM. Biosecurity, in my opinion, is at this point even more important, and that really just means common sense. So, you know, when you're introducing new horses into a herd, which is a stressful situation for them, you want to make sure you quarantine them um, and you maybe monitor their temperature twice daily. If you go to a horse show, you know, you don't share water buckets or feeding um, trays or things Mm -hmm. like that. You try and stay away from horses that are not, um, you know, horses that your horse is commonly exposed to, you know, anything that you touch um, could carry the virus that you could then bring back to your horse, so you want to make sure you wash your hands regularly, It's, it's really common sense and you don't necessarily house them all together in close quarters with bad ventilation. So, you know, when we are talking about viruses, you know, we are all very aware of how to prevent COVID. You know, it's, um, you know, it's kind of very similar in many ways, except for that clearly we are not, you know, putting little masks on our horses these days. But I would say that's general, just common sense um, measures that I would take. Clearly, if you have an outbreak, then we are talking more about you know, increased um, you know, physical exams every day, taking daily temperatures. Um, if you are in an outbreak situation, you may want to um, do some diagnostics where you collect nasal swabs and blood for testing of viremia that you then submit to a diagnostic lab um, and a lot of those sort of things. But on a day-to-day basis, you have to be um, you know, aware that these viruses are around most horses have been infected with the virus. they are latently infected. so you know just use common sense, I would say, and use vaccinations um, according to AEP guidelines in many ways in specific risk groups where um, it's indicated. but don't vaccinate your horses and think that they are now wonderfully protected and you are all good and don't need to worry about anything else anymore.
0: yeah. You had mentioned earlier that depending on whether you're running a a breeding farm or you have a lot of young horses or you've got horses that are traveling, that there are different vaccines that are marketed for those particular purposes. Can you explain to the veterinarians maybe in a way they can help their owners understand why there are different vaccines for those and how they work?
1: So for one, not all vaccines work equally for prevention of abortion. So if you have a breeding operation, you probably want to pick one that's um, marketed for that particular purpose. And then on the other hand, you know, pregnancy um, does present a um, time in the horse's life where the immune system is, I want to say altered, because people always talk about pregnancy as this you know, highly immunocompromised state, but that is not entirely true. Like that too, it really depends on what trimester the horse is and other things. However, because there is the risk of immunocompromise, we don't really recommend the use of modified live vaccines in um, pregnant horses. And the modified live vaccine that's out there. Um, on the market, which is immune, is actually not licensed for prevention of abortion anyway. So the, that is a vaccine that's used for prevention of respiratory disease, mostly in young horses. In my opinion, there are advantages to using modified live vaccines because you're really dealing with the whole virus that's just attenuated in many ways but of course there's also risks associated. And interestingly enough, when we look at the inactivated vaccines that are commonly used, which are Prodigy, Pneumabord, Pelvenza, there's a few others, um, they've actually shown to work better at reducing viremia and um, are, you know, Pneumabort and Prodigy are the ones that are licensed for prevention or at least reducing abortion. So those would be the ones that you use in uh, a pregnant mare or in a breeding operation in many ways. And, you know, they have adjuvants that stimulate um, the immune response specifically. And so that's, in my opinion, probably why they may be more geared towards developing not just an antibody response but also cellular immunity which is really important in the protection from um, the secondary disease manifestations of ehv1
0: right okay so now we're going to ask the other million dollar question so why do you think that manufacturers why have researchers not been able to create an anti-neurologic vaccine against equine herpes iris? Today's Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you by Merck Animal Health, the maker of Prestige Vaccines, Banamine, panicure, Regimate, Protozil, and other trusted equine health solutions. Merck Animal Health works for you and for horses. Learn more about Merck Animal Health's comprehensive portfolio of products as well as their ongoing investment in our industry, profession, and community through programs such as the Respiratory Biosurveillance Program at MerckAnimalHealthUSA.com.
1: So, I mean, I would say, you know, let's take a step back here and let's look at herpes virus vaccines in um, general. They are notoriously really difficult viruses to develop vaccines for. And, you know, the two main reasons for that would be because they do establish latency in their host, and that happens usually at a very early age. They also are known to have many viral proteins that function as immunomodulatory or immunosuppressive proteins. So they basically directly work against the immune system. So that makes it really tricky to develop good vaccines that can get around that. Now, the other thing that's unique to EHV-1 is the that this is a virus that goes from the respiratory tract in individual, um, you know, blood cells and establishes viremia there and sort of hides out in these cells. And that's how it gets transported to the spinal cord vascular endothelium. Um, So that's the blood cells of the spinal cord. And then you get, you know, infection of those cells and, you know, um, the neurological disease, and you get, you know, Um, an inflammatory and immune response at the spinal cord too that all contribute to the pathological um, image that we see. And so there is this unique feature of EHV-1 and the viremia that really gives the virus an ideal way to hide out and to modulate. Because again, we got to remember these blood cells, those are the cells that really mount the immune system too. So the virus can hide out in this location to get to the secondary sites, but it also can really alter the um, induction of immunity. And then on top of it, and this is sort of, you know, more what I study when I do my research too, I think for me, it's really intriguing that um, what happens early on at the respiratory tract seems to have a big effect on the induction of immunity that we see downstream and in my opinion also on whether we see ehm or not now those are not you know usually we don't have the numbers to really make this claim but it's certainly something that i've observed many times and so you know we've recently actually had a study where we compared old horses and youngsters in terms of what clinical disease we saw in them following, you know, infection was a neuropathogenic strain of EHV1. And then, of course, we also wanted to study the immune system that or immunological responses that went along with it. And what I found fascinating, you know, with the same virus, exact viral strain, same viral strain in the youngsters, which were one and two years old. Um, all of the horses had significant respiratory disease accompanied by fever, but only one of them had a very mild form of neurological disease. Now, in the old mares, which were all 17 years old or older, none of the horses had any respiratory disease, but all of them had some level of neurological disease, and 7 out of 10 actually had significant... you know, a neurological disease that resulted in um, euthanasia. So there definitely is this, um, you know, discrepancy between how much respiratory disease we see and the risk for um, EHM, I think. And I think that is a very interesting um, phenomenon and one that's very worthwhile looking into further.
0: That is is, has that been
1: published? um some of that has been published some of that we are in the process of publishing
0: okay well we look forward to reading that and and uh for our listening audience in the article on equimanagement.com, we'll uh talk to Dr. Zobohasi and see if we can get a link back to any of the published research so that you can go back and read that because that I want to go read that that sounds very interesting um so There have also been some questions out in the public that vaccinated horses might be
1: at higher risk for neurologic disease. What are your comments on that? Well, I would say I would be cautious um, because, you know, there are studies out, well, there are some reports out there that certainly indicate that. There are also some reports out there that sort of say that's not true. And I have yet um, to find a study that co- inconclusive or conclusively actually um, affirms that. So, while, while there may be some truth to it, I also think it may depend on what type of antibody is induced. Um, You know, there's different subclasses of antibody and all of that. But um, I would be very cautious with this claim. Um, it's, it's a difficult one to um, really answer because, yeah, there may be some truth to it, but I'm not convinced. So not quite sure what to say. I mean, I would say, you know, if as I'm studying this virus and trying to learn more about the immune system and what all goes on, um, it's certainly always something that's in the back of my mind. And I wouldn't just dismiss these reports either, because there certainly is probably, you know, some information in there, but what it exactly means and what the mechanism is, or, you know, if, the statement that vaccination increases EHM is true, that I would be highly doubtful of. Yeah. And and some
0: research you had just mentioned may lead people to look at those horses a different way based on age or
1: exposure. And and yeah, so that, that, that's a good point. Thank you for clarifying. So many confounding factors too, you know, and also when, when I was just talking about, so, you know, I'm, by heart, probably more of an immunologist than I'm a hardcore virologist. And what we do know is, you know, there is the innate um, arm of the immune response, which is really immediate early on, and then there's the adaptive arm of the immune response. But the two are, of course, linked. So what type of early, you know, in the first few hours, first 24 to 48 hours, what type of immune response you get early on at the respiratory tract, will really determine the type of adaptive immune response, meaning is it more cellular or cell-mediated? Is it more antibody-mediated immune response you get? So clearly, if you don't have any or very little replication uh, at the respiratory tract, no respiratory disease, then maybe that's going to alter the immune response that we'll see you know, down the road too. And this is the same with a vaccination, maybe depending on what vaccine you use or how you use it, it might alter, you know, the type of immune response that's induced. So you can't just have a blanket statement where you say, oh, all vaccination predisposes horses to EHM. I think that that would be a disservice. So it's much more difficult and differentiated really than that.
0: Yeah, so I guess for for veterinarians, it's still let's follow AAP guidelines, let's protect them, watch them, biosecurity. So, I mean, just the logical things that we can help with our our clients. Exactly. Um, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here. And just to be perfectly clear, we have uh, Merck Animal Health as our sponsor for this. So, um, but- I wanted to ask you because I had become aware that you have done some research recently looking at the modified live equine influenza vaccine flu avert and how it might protect a horse against equine herpes virus
1: infection. So what's going on there? So, I mean, this actually is a perfect follow-up question on what I just talked about. You know, clearly, um, you know, so there are some historical reports that horses that are vaccinated with this vaccine you know, might be or tend to be better protected from ehp one as well. But those are sort of more, you know, word of mouth reports. But the general idea behind this really is that if you use another virus vaccine, respiratory virus, um, that may not suppress the immune system or induction of immunity the same way herpes viruses do, so equine flu would be a perfect example here, and you use a modified live vaccine that is able to really stimulate strong, early innate immune responses at the respiratory tract, that that actually might be beneficial for guiding or inducing the adaptive immunity to EHV1. Now, I mean, clearly, um, if you just give the flu vaccine, you can't expect to come back three months later and have great protection from herpes virus, you know, unless you vaccinate against that as well. And we haven't done any studies where we've, you know, sort of kind of done, you know, the vaccination was word at the same time as we vaccinate with, um, let's say, prodigy, if we are talking about yep. um, and use it, so to speak, as an adjuvant to guide the immune system but we've done some preliminary studies and these are in vitro studies where we've just looked at the effect of inducing you know early cytokine and interference and chemokine responses in respiratory epithelial cells and would that reduce viral infection with EHV1 in these respiratory cells and we did find that yes that is true because the fluover does stimulate you know, cytokine and chemokine responses, interference, and those are typically beneficial for prevention of EHV1 as well. So, the value of Fluovert um, for protection from EHV1 is likely by inducing strong innate immune responses.
0: Which goes right along with the research you talked about earlier that the horses that got the stronger respiratory response early on seem to not develop the
1: neurologic disease. Right. right. And, you know when you are thinking and this is sort of more as um, you know how could this be applicable to you know to horses in the field but you know if you're thinking about oh you know i'm gonna go and take my horses to a horse show there you know there's likely going to be a more stressful situation they may be more exposed you know let's just vaccinate them before we go so let's say you give these horses um you know the flu vaccine to boost for um you know protection from influenza at the same time, if you do it at the right timing, it actually might help against um fighting off any EHV one that they may ex- be exposed to that show there as well. So that would be, you know, a practical approach to sort of, you know, <laughs> killing two birds with one stone. Um, so no,
0: but there's so much, you know, so many so many places require you to have the flu vaccine on board at a certain time. So Hopefully, that that may be something that we can learn more about that would benefit our horses in more than one way.
1: Right. And I mean, clearly, um, using a vaccine like Fluovirt, which is an intranasal vaccine, it's a, a modified live vaccine that's known to stimulate mucosal immunity um is what we would want because it's the mucosal immunity that's really important early on i mean clearly if you use an inactivated vaccine that you give sub qim that's not going to do the same thing for mucosal immunity so the sort of thought behind using Fluvert was really that this is the vaccine that's known to produce strong antiviral mucosal immunity which we know would also be really important in the protection from EHV-1. And, you know, clearly you could also use other immune stimulants, you know, and other things, but in this particular instance, it may be um, just, you know, an easy and simple thing that could be very useful to do.
0: Well, I have learned a lot in just these few short minutes we have been talking And I recognize that you do this on a day-to-day basis. Is there anything else that you would like to share with the veterinarians about equine herpes virus and perhaps the the increased concern they're getting from their horse owners at this time when we're just seeing so many more reports of herpes?
1: Well, I mean, I think the the main point that um, I like to make and that I try and get across to our veterinary students as well, who are the future veterinarians clearly, is that, you know, clearly we are trying to develop better vaccines that will protect from EHM as well. But in the absence of such a vaccine, what we are really left with is good biosecurity. And I really try and bring this home that it is critical to follow those guidelines. And so really think about, you know, what you're doing with your horses. You know, are you introducing new horses to a herd? What are sources, you um, you know, of um, infection, as I said, um, EHV-1 is a virus that um, is usually, trans- I mean, can be transmitted by aerosol, but it's much more likely to be transmitted by foma- fomites, which means anything that touches, you know, nasal secretions, you know, the the gear that caretakers use to clean the horse stalls, feeding equipment, stuff like that. You know, use common sense, clean things regularly. Don't just introduce new horses into the herd. Um, You know, good ventilation um, is also a good idea. And, you know, or, you know, clearly you do have horses maybe coming into the barn new, but maybe keep them separate from the other horses. You know, there's really good biosecurity guidelines out there and use them, stick to them. I mean, I wouldn't you know, be in a huge panic on a daily basis. I mean, these viruses have been around for a long time, but using common sense and um, following these guidelines would be prudent in my opinion.
0: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Zobelhasi for joining us today. Your Your students are very fortunate to have someone who has not only got an inquisitive mind in the research lab, but has very practical tips. And thank you for sharing those with us this morning. Happy to do so. And thank you to our audience for listening to Disease Dejour today. And a special thanks to our 2021 sponsor, Merck Animal Health. You can listen and rate previous and future episodes of Disease Dejour on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Please take our survey so we know how to serve you better with our podcast. And if you have any questions or suggestions, send an email to me at kbrown, that's the letter K brown at aimmedia.com. Disease Du Jour is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of the Equine Network, LLC.